Today, Pastor Javen begins a new series called The Greatest of These. In part one, we will see that God's love is a love that heals. Before we begin, ask yourself, am I letting my sinfulness hide behind a veil of religion? Take a moment to pause and pray, preparing your heart for today's service. Uh, we're going to be uh, starting a new series today uh, called The Greatest of These is Love. Now, love, love has a way of changing us. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this in life. We've mentioned it uh, over the last several months, how love can bring change to our life. Uh, it changes in us what needs to change often. Now, we love unconditionally, right? We love others uh, regardless because that's the way that God has taught us to love. Just because something happens that may not go the way we like, it doesn't mean that we pull back our love. God doesn't do that to us. So we love unconditionally, but when we are loved unconditionally, that love has a way of changing us. You know, I think about a couple of different loves immediately from in my life. I think about a parent's love and the love of a spouse. You know, the, a parent's love is a love that should love unconditionally. I am a parent now. Some of you in here are parents. I had parents at one time in my life. Still do, actually. Believe it or not. <laughs> I love my mom. She's sitting over there this morning. Um, all of us in here have had parents in our life, right? So, so we have, you know, we, we have this love of the parent that has a way of changing us. And often the love of the parent that changes us is the love that comes through the form of discipline. Everybody says, amen. amen. Right? Now we say that from the standpoint of a child being disciplined, right? Not from the standpoint of a parent getting to discipline. Right? When I was a child, I didn't think that my parents loved me. I just thought they wanted my life to be miserable from time to time. <laughs> no, you can't stay home and watch the game. You have to go to church. Oh, come on, mom, dad. But all my friends are doing it. Well, if all your friends are doing it, jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? <laughs> this is the classics, right? And we get to use those today, you know, but so many different things. But now I look back and I realize that the, the, the things that my parents may have taken away from me, you know, it was because they loved me. And I think you think about a spouse's love, you know, we're often told don't marry someone with the goal of changing them. And that really shouldn't be our, the case. Uh, because they, it, you, you can, that, there can be red flags there. But when you are in a loving relationship with a spouse, with your, with your, with your uh, significant other, me and my wife, there's a love that's there when she loves me unconditionally. There's things about me that have changed through the years, I think, right? Some things. She didn't have to change. She was perfect and still is. There's never a reason of anything that needed to change, right? Yeah. You know, but there's, there, there, there's some things about me that haven't changed. I'll give you a most recent example. Uh, you know, I told, we, we knew we were going on that trip last week and I'm a Penn State fan. And when I, I knew that last Saturday, Penn State was going to be playing Iowa at four o'clock. It was going to be a top five matchup. And I told my wife, okay, that means we've got to be where we're going and checked in by four o'clock so that I can get the TV on and I can watch the game. Right. And we arrived 
perfect time. We got into, uh, into Florida. We got down there. She, she looked at me on the way down. She said, maybe we can go to Disney Springs and eat at Chicken Guy before going to her house. And I thought, hey, that's a good idea. I like eating and I like Chicken Guy. I highly recommend if you're ever around one. Uh, so we went there and we ate. We got done. You know, I'm looking at the clock because I knew how much time we had to get to where we were going by four o'clock. And we're walking out and my wife and daughter are just looking at me with these eyes. We can't walk around and look a little bit. Babe, I told you last week it was going to be four o'clock. You know, I kind of set that up, you know, letting you know this is where. And man, so lovingly, she allowed us to leave and uh, get to the house. And I turned the TV right as the first play was happening. I thought, God, you are so good to me. You know, so there's some things about me. Yes, there's still a work in progress. But there's a lot of things in me, I believe, that has changed because of her unconditional love in my life. But love has a way of changing us. God's love has a way of changing us. I love this quote from J.I. Packer. He said this, he said, and still he, talking about God, seeks the fellowship of his people and will send them both joy and sorrow. Why? To detach their hands away from the things of the world and to attach those hands to himself. Because he loves us. He does that because he loves us and he wants us to see how much he loves us. And he wants our love to be directed back to him. So we're beginning this series to understand the greatest of these is love. If you watched with us online a couple of weeks ago, thank you so much uh, for your grace in that. We just felt like it was the wise thing to do to be cautious in that regards. Uh, So I hope you watched online. If not, you can go back. I know it was different. But I hope that it, it still ministered to you. We kind of set up where I believe the Holy Spirit wants to take us over these next uh, couple of months. But talking about faith, hope, and love. And Paul said that the greatest of these is love. And that's where I want to talk today. And as we look through this series, we're going to look at God's love from the perspective and the description of three different minor prophets. Now, they weren't minor because they didn't, their words didn't mean as much as the other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were minor because they didn't say as much, all right? They were not as long-winded as Isaiah and Jeremiah. So you guys are probably hoping I'm a minor preacher today, and I get that, so let's, you know, let's, let's get going. So to understand Malachi and to realize what Malachi is doing and what's happening here, Mal- we're, we're going to look at Malachi. We're starting at the end of the Old Testament. And to understand where we are, Malachi actually means a messenger. In fact, some believe that that Malachi may not have actually been the name. They may have just, they thought it might've actually just been a description of the person that was giving the word, a messenger of Jehovah, you know, but I like to think and believe that it was an actual guy named Malachi. But you know, the point is the powerful word that he brings us and he brings to the Southern nation of Israel at this time. See where they are, is the nation of Israel. This is the last that they would hear from God for 400 years. A time frame that has been deemed the silent years, I'd say, right? You go 400 years without hearing from something, that's a long time. So the next time though, that they would hear from God would be when John the Baptist begins to speak and prepare the way and Jesus would follow him right after. But the Israelites were, they're in a place where they had, 
returned from captivity. They had returned from the captivity that they were in. They had rebuilt the temple and and they had began to be able to experience and practice their faith the way that they were before they were taken into captivity. And I want us to keep in mind the perspective that the nation had, the perspective that they had of what God had done in their life. They had seen both the rewards of God's faithfulness. And they had also seen the punishment of judgment that come from not following God the way that they should. But with all the perspective that they had, the ability basically to kind of weigh the proverbial scales of balance, if you will, to see the difference between the two, to see the benefit and the beauty of the one and the travail of the other, they were still prone to wander. Like Pastor Casey spoke to us last week, they wandered. They were a nation that constantly wandered. And it's believed that they had been in back in this place for a little over a hundred years. And though the temple had been rebuilt, they were, and they were able to worship God. They were not worshiping God with the passion and the zeal that they should be worshiping God with. They were worshiping with apathy and with complacency. I want us to think about that. Now we've been in a place where the way we we're doing church was kind of taken from us last year. We didn't go have to go into captivity and we've been back into the way we were doing church for over a year now, but have we fully come back with the passion and zeal that God wants us to have in our life? There's sadly a lot that still have apathy and complacency in how they see their relationship with God. And how they come to worship him. And this is exactly where the nation of Israel was. They were in a place where they were apathetic and they were complacent in their worship with God. And so Malachi begins to rebuke this nation, begins to rebuke Judah by appealing to them about the love of God. I want us to go and and we're going to look at just uh, some segments from Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. These first two verses, I just want to see, I want us to see what God says to them and, and, and how Malachi begins to point out where their focus is and what they're focusing on. Malachi chapter one, in verse one, it says this, this is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Verse two, it says, I have always loved you, said the Lord. So Malachi is professing to to his listeners that God is telling them, that God is speaking to them. I've always loved you. I've never stopped loving you. And they think there's no way that God loves them. They say this, they say, Malachi says, but your heart, but you retort, really? Really? How have you loved us? Think about that verse. Think about what they're saying. See, God loved them, but it was hard for them to see God's love. They were a lot like what Nadia was talking about earlier because they were focusing on the wrong things. Their focus was on what was happening around them and the climate of their culture and the climate of the way things were around them and what they were experiencing, what was happening to them and around them. But God wanted them to take their focus off all that stuff and begin to focus on the the decisions that they were making that may be causing some of that stuff and wanted them to focus on where their heart is in relation to God. Their focus was wrong. They, they were looking at the wrong things. They were, their perspective of everything that was happening around them was wrong. 
In the New Testament, we see that Paul and, and James would write these words and say to, that, that, that we should rejoice in our difficult circumstances. James would say we should consider them pure joy when we face them. Why? Because they had a perspective that says that, yes, we're going to go through things in life and we're going to go through difficult situations. But even when we go through these things, God still loves us and God is still there. The testing of our faith is not to prove to God where we stand with him. The testing of our faith is to show us where we stand with God. When you're, that's why we rejoice because we're seeing how strong I am in my faith with God. See, when we focus more on the promises than we do the God of the promises, then it leads us to begin to make decisions and do things that we shouldn't do. Because when we're focusing on the promises, we want the promises to come to pass. We want the promises to happen. We want the fruit of the promises. So when we want the promises to happen, impatience kicks in. And when impatience kicks in, wisdom gets kicked out. How many times does that happen in your life? You get impatient. And so because you get impatient, you force something to happen. And wisdom isn't a part of that. And this is what the nation of Israel was doing over and over and over again. They were getting impatient and seeing the promise of God come to fulfillment. So because they don't see the promise happen the way they wanted it to, when they wanted it to, they began to push to make it happen the way they thought it should happen. And they were failing in their relationship with God. They were beginning to embrace more of the culture around them than they were their God. There was a blending of what God had spoke to them. There was a blending of their faith and what they believed, the blending of right and wrong. They were going through a lot of religious motion, but there was no spiritual connection. See, Malachi began to express to them that God loved them, but they weren't honoring that love. Malachi pointed out, you're religious. You do the religious things, but you're honoring your desires, what you want, more than you're honoring me. And so he begins to point out some things to them. Malachi does. And he starts by pointing out their doubt. He starts by pointing out their unbelieving hearts, which is the root of their inward focus. He says to them that you're constantly questioning, how can God love me? Again, remember the perspective that the nation had. The perspective that they had to, to be able to, to, to see what God had done and what had happened when they disobeyed. God had freed them from slavery, from Egypt. He had brought them out of captivity from Pharaoh. He had led them by, uh, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He had, he had, he had miraculously provided food and, and water for them to drink in the wilderness. He, 
He allowed them to defeat enemies three times their size. He had just most recently brought them again out of captivity that they were in because of their disobedience and allowed them to rebuild their temple to worship him again. But they're still questioning, how does God love us? How does God love us? There's never a point in our life where our questions bother God. But we cannot let our lack of understanding lead us to a place where we question and doubt God's character, his love, and his goodness. In Psalm 94, I want us to see this this morning. The author of this psalm, after expressing a lot that's going on around him, makes this statement. He says, I cried out, I am slipping. I'm falling. I'm losing my place. My faith is wavering. And then he says this, but your unfailing love, O Lord, has supported me. And then look what he says in verse 19. He says, when doubts fill my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. Some translations, you may have a translation that says, when anxious thoughts filled my mind. And it's, it's saying the same thing because the Hebrew word basically means it, it's, it's coming from a word that means disquieting thoughts, which is rooted in a, a word that means divided thoughts. So in other words, what the, the reason it's being translated this way is it's saying that there's thoughts in my mind that are pulling me away from God that are causing me to question, causing me to doubt and causing me to be anxious in my faith. But what does the writer of this psalm say? Even though I'm slipping, even though I'm failing, even though my faith is wavering, even though I'm doubting, your unfailing love isn't letting go of me. Your unfailing love is right there with me. And though I have these doubts, though I have these anxious thoughts, you still comfort me. I can rest in your comfort. J.C. Ryle, who was a preacher and writer in the 1800s, is credited with saying these words, in the light of the cross... The greatest insult you can give God is to doubt his love for you. See, we, we can look at everything that might be happening around us. And if we keep our focus on the things that are happening around us, we're going to see our doubt begin to come, come, come rising up. And we're going to begin to question, God, how do you love me? Because if you love me, none of this stuff would be happening around me. None of this stuff would be happening to me. But don't doubt the love of God. Just look at the cross. Because when you look at the cross, you see how much he loved you. That's a perspective we had that have that the nation of Israel at that time did not have. But they still had a perspective of God working in their life. So don't let the doubt question. It reminds me of of the dad in Mark chapter 9 who had a son who was being attacked by an evil spirit and constantly being harassed by that evil spirit. And the dad, because he loved his child, goes to Jesus and he tells Jesus what's happening. He wants Jesus to to work a miracle, to, to free his son from this the spirit. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, please do something. Please have mercy on my son. If you can. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, what do you mean? If I can. It's in Mark chapter nine. He says, anything is possible for those who believe. 
And then the father says something that seems contradictory. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe you've heard that statement before. What do you mean you do believe? Help my unbelief. How how do you need help with your unbelief if you believe? In other words, the man is saying, God, I I believe you can do it. Help me to trust the process in which you're going to do it. Help me to trust what you're doing in my life. Help me to trust that you know what's best. Help me to trust that you can deliver. It takes more than just head belief. Because as James says, even the demons believe he's God and tremble. So if head belief is all we have, then we got that in common with the demons. Trust is what we need. The nation of Israel was losing their trust. We're going to see that more in just a second. How often do we lose our trust? Because we doubt God's love. We question God's love. And then Malachi goes forward and he begins to point out the way they're approaching worship. Look at what he says in verse 13 to them. He he says, you say, it's too hard to serve the Lord. (laughs) When I read that, I think about a child. It's just too hard. (laughs) I don't want to. You say it's too hard to serve the Lord and you turn up your noses at my commands, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick. That's what you're presenting as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these? You know, you're, you're questioning, do I love you? And look at how you're loving me. Worship is a burden to you, God is saying. You come to me half-hearted. Seeking me to fully do what you want. There's no sacrifice in your worship. It's quite the difference between King David years ago. What we see in 2 Samuel 24, 24, when David had just recently been disciplined by God. And so he makes an altar and he brings a sacrifice to God and he uses the, and, and, and the place that he goes to make the sacrifice says, no, just let me bless you with this. Let me give you this. And David says to him these powerful words, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. What statement is our worship making to God? Does God see a heart that's fully focused on him every day of our life? That's bringing him what we can. That's bringing him our best. Or is he seeing a life that's just giving him what we can give him when it's convenient for us to give it to him? This is the nation of Israel at this moment. They're giving what's convenient. They're saying, well, I I don't trust God enough 
So let's just give him this one over here. This one, this one does us no good anyway. Let's give him that one. And then Malachi begins to go in and begins to rebuke, rebuke, rebuke the priest. Listen to this in verses seven to nine. He said, the words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God and people should go to him for instructions. For the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. But you priests have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You have corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people. For you have not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. See, this is saying that anybody in my position, there is a weight that comes on us a responsibility that comes on us, that we have to take this role seriously. The way that we bring to you the word of God on a weekly basis, it has to be taken with seriousness. We'll be judged for that. And notice too that he says that You've obeyed me, but you've shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. That means that the priest has a responsibility not to do what we do in leading God's people in the role that we have in the church that he has placed us as those that lead the church in the body of Christ where we are to lead based on the way God is instructing us and showing us to lead, not to, 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 to honor God and to, uh, to, to, to show approval to God, not to show approval to man. So my decisions have to be based on what pleases God, not what pleases man. That's why sometimes preachers and pastors disappoint people. But the question is, are they pleasing God? Because that's the most important thing. And we can't allow and overlook certain sins just because that person might scratch our back. Well, I'll overlook that because of who you are. The weight must be taken seriously. But I want to remind us, though, that just as seriously as I must take this weight and any person that stands in the place that I do, I want to remind us of Peter's words in 1 Peter 2.9, where he says that we are all a part of this holy nation. We are all royal priesthood. Uh Uh-oh. So now we all carry this mantle from Christ with this seriousness to take serious his word, to take serious what he has shown us and to not overlook things in our own life and those we love out of favoritism. We all have a standard to follow. And then Malachi begins to point out that standard to the nation in one area in which they're failing God. And I want us to see it, Malachi chapter 2. I'm going to read it. I don't have these on the screens, uh, uh, Wyatt. So uh, Malachi 2, verses 10, he says this, Are we not all children of the same Father? Are we not all created by the same God? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Judah's been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. 
May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. Again, religious motions, but no spiritual connection. Here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings. Doesn't accept them with pleasure. And you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. So what he's pointing out to them is that they are being very self-seeking. Because you're not getting what you want in your marriage, you're looking for it in other places. To fulfill what you want, what you desire. See, he's, conf- he's, he's confronting them the way they flippantly treat their marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is supposed to reflect the love that God has for us. It's supposed to be a love that loves despite, despite mistakes. It's supposed to be a love that loves beyond our own desires. It's supposed to be a love that remains, a love that perseveres. Now, that's not to say that there's not a reason. Biblically and scripturally, there's not a reason for divorce. But it's also not to say that any reason is a good reason for divorce. The adultery is actually, spiritually, even Jesus speaks to this. You, you, you can have your out from the covenant. But think about God's love. And this is not, please don't take this as condemning to anyone that may be in a situation like this. But I want us to think about God's love. If God's love was given and taken away from us the way we give and take away our love with people often, we would have lost God's love a long time ago. And this is what Malachi is pointing out. God has not taken his love away from us, even though we have been spiritually adulterous in our relationship with him over and over and over again. See, they continually, the nation of Israel continually failed to trust God. So they continually failed to follow him. And he shows them one more way they can, they didn't trust him. Again, in Malachi chapter three, he shows them, you don't trust me because you don't give your tithes and your offerings. We talked about this a few weeks ago and we talked about giving with joy. But Malachi points out this is such a serious thing and we need to take it seriously in in, in so much so that he tells the listeners to test God in it. It's the only time we see in scripture that we're given the ability to test God. Begin to tithe, begin to sow your offering and see what he does for you in return. But do it with joy, do it with the right heart. They were bringing their offerings, but they were bringing scraps. He's saying, you're not doing it the way that's going to bless you. Why? Because you don't trust me. You don't trust God. See, why does he, why is this talked about so much throughout scripture? Because our giving is a barometer of our hearts. We see where our hearts stand with God often by how willing we are to give to what he's laying out and calling us to give to. So the Israelites are in this place where they are, they lack trust. They don't trust God. 
And because they weren't trusting God, it was affecting their view of God. It was leading them to be more self-seeking and self-centered than it was leading them to pursue God with everything in them. And then we see the last words of Malachi. The very last word in, in a testament that begins with the beauty of creation. The very last word in the Old Testament from Malachi is the word curse. At least the way we read it. The last thing they hear for 400 years they're wondering about is curse. What is this curse? Are we in this curse? Have we been cursed? You know, the the nation of Israel, all throughout the years, they had made promises to God. God, I won't leave you. I'm going to stay faithful to you. We're going to stay faithful to you. And then they would fail. They had the resolve. They had the will. They had the resolve to, to want to do. And we're like that often. We have the resolve. We have the will, the desire we want to do. But often we're also like Paul when we're saying, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And the things I don't want to do, I do. We have the resolve, but God knew that we needed more than resolve. We needed a rebirth. And that's why just before those last words of Malachi, he says this in chapter four, verse two, he says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings And after 400 years of silence, a young man would be born by the name of John. Whose dad would speak with a prophetic voice to John and say these words that we see in Luke 1, 76 to 78. He would tell him, and you, my little son, you'll be called the prophet of the most high because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You'll tell his people how to find salvation from the forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. The sun of righteousness is about to rise. And the morning light, it will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And it will guide us to the path of peace. That path we've been trying to create on our own. That path we've been trying to make happen on our own. It'll lead us. John would begin to speak of the Messiah. He would begin to talk about the one the nation of Israel had been waiting on. The one that would bring healing. The one who would come right after John. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the son of God, would be the son of righteousness. That would bring the healing that we need. And Matthew and Mark would say that Jesus would immediately begin to preach, repent, turn from and turn to. Be made new in me, he would say. And Jesus Christ would take upon himself the very curse that we should have. 
he would absorb it into himself. And because of Jesus Christ, we can find the healing that we need. And that is the healing for our soul. Listen, we'll all deal with the curse of the fall until the fullness of the restoration happens. But the restoration has already began in Christ. It's already been given to us. We are able to be made new in him. His love heals us. His love heals our souls. Israel was a nation, a body of people who were impatient. They were blending their faith with their culture. They were doubting. They were accepting sin that should not have been accepted. They were unfaithful. They were not trusting God. Yet God never stopped loving them. And his love would heal them. And it's the same for us today. If we're a people who have been this way, we've been impatient. We've blended our faith with our culture. We've been unfaithful to God. We've not trusted God the way that we should. We doubted his love. God would say to you today, I've never stopped loving you. And he wants to heal us with his love. He wants to give us a rebirth and a newness in him. It's because of Jesus that we can sing this song that we ended worship with and we're going to end the service with right now. It is well with our soul. Why? Because Jesus Christ has done what he's done. His love has healed us. Stand with me this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you today that your love is a healing love. And God, as we've gone through this, what the prophet Malachi spoke to the nation of Israel, Father, I pray that today we have seen ourselves in this. And God, if there's anything in us that may resemble the nation of Israel at this point in their life, Father, I pray today that you will convict us of it that we'll see it, God, that there will be sorrow from it so that we can release it today and we can grab onto you. Father, I pray today that if our souls have not been made new in you, if there's anyone in this room today that their soul hasn't been made new in you, that God, today that would happen. That the son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, would bring healing to their souls today. And that they could sing just as those who follow you. It is well with my soul. But God, I also pray today that if our worship towards you has been half-hearted, God, help us to change that today, God. Convict us to bring our full hearts to you. If Father, if we've been unfaithful to you in any way, if we've blended the culture around us and put trust in things that aren't of you, God, help us today to put our trust completely and solely in you and you alone. God, if we've ever, if we've doubted your love towards us recently, God, convict us to help us to see that you do love us, God. 
Father, help us today to worship you in a way with faith, confessing, believing. God, it is well with our soul because of what you have done for us today. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.